You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. We're all backstage in that Madison Square Garden. There's press everywhere. I mean, there must have been yeah, hundreds of sure. people down underneath the where all the cars come in and out. And Eddie was there with his wife and little baby Wolfgang Van Halen. He must have been six years old, seven, tiny little guy. And uh, he's walking with his family, catches me out of the corner of his eye, walks through a hundred press and special guests and promoters to come over to me and tell me, hey, uh, I forgot to tell you, you got to take two of those springs off of, of the Floyd Rose to make it you know, play like mine. All right. He gives me a kiss on the cheek, walks off with his with his family, gets in the gets in the van. I was like, like a legend. Are you kidding me? Today's episode is very special, very special for me. And and I think anyone, anyone in my general age demographic who who grew up playing guitar, you know, in their early teens. Um, This is 2020. My name is Corey Pays. I'm here as always with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. Uh, Do you guys have fun on this one? This is it my childhood, awesome. dude. Like, this was it. This is why I wanted to play heavy guitar. And anyone who says that this dude didn't mean anything to them is just a liar. Yeah. We have the one and only Mark Tremonti on with us today. And it's just uh, such a great opportunity, I think, to, to, to dive into the head of someone who had such an impact on me personally. Yeah, he was such a cool guy. So without further ado, just check it out. Part one with Mark Tremonti. Subscribe to 0020-day.com. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman. I'm wearing these stupid glasses if you're watching on YouTube, which you should at 2020-D.com because my eyes hurt from looking at the computer. High class problem. But my name is Benny Goodman. You're listening to 2020. I'm here with my cohorts in crime as we have trademark pending. Corey Peza and Siobhan Cronin, not in order of anything other than that's what I thought of. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ben, how's it going? Fantastic. How about you, Siobhan? Good. I'm excited for this one today. We have a super, super special guest. And, you know, I will say as the classical musician in the group, I'm excited to pick your brain about songwriting and your entire history. So today with us, we have Mark Tremonti of Mark Tremonti of Alter Bridge (laughs) of so many amazing projects. You know, I've watched a few interviews with you and read a bit about you, and I'm definitely not the nerd in the group when it comes to guitar stuff. He's in a band. I thought he was just a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever suits your fancy. (laughs) <laughs> well, I like your guitar. It's really pretty. It has birds on it and things, and it's cool. I mean, Let's the birds are everything for me. I mean, honestly, when I saw my first PRS, I was like, out of all the guitars, it came, it's like the one in Wayne's World. It's like, I got $5,000. I want the ones with the birds. That's I don't the one. Up. I don't see one hanging up behind you. I see squares. If you only knew that I have yeah. 39 PRSs right you gotta, there. You got to tune in from a different spot now, Ben, because people yeah. are used to this view. We have to see the guitar room because I don't well, think people well, why don't believe you. Why don't you interview him and I'll just start putting PRSs <laughs> in the back. I'll, just, I'll, I'll be back. You have think important things to say, guys. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we got connected, obviously, by our friend Steve Wood, who was on one of our previous episodes. So for all the listeners, you can go check out that episode, too. Um, but anyway, I guess to start off, since we started by talking about guitars, I saw an interesting clip in an interview with you um, where you told the story of how you kind of got your first guitar and how you got interested. So, you know, as the, the person in the group that isn't a guitarist here, I if you could tell our listeners kind of the story of how you first got into playing guitar and getting your first instrument and why you were drawn to it. Yeah, I used to hear, uh, you know, my older brothers would play music upstairs and I'd hear what they were playing. And then um, I was always drawn to bands that would break down to just a guitar, you know, like uh, if it was a Jay Giles band doing Love Stinks, just the simplest riff, just a guitar kicking. Um, Boston would do it a lot, and I was always just so drawn to it. My um, good friend of mine's older brother played guitar, and he was this punk, he was a punk guy, and he would, my friend said he would kick uh, your ass if you touched his guitar. That. We have to fit more on you. Hold on. <laughs> ben, nice. stay silent. You said to do the interview while you stack guitars. <laughs> Tell hey, you what. There you go. He's gonna break a lot of things right now. Um, I'm gonna mute him. You can keep going. <laughs> hey, so you know, so my buddy had this older brother who would kick your ass if you touched his guitar, and um, I'd hear him playing through the through the door, and I was just dying to get my just to see what would happen just touching the guitar, you know, electric guitar. So um, 
my buddy um, was selling his guitar for 10 bucks. So I bought my first guitar for $10 and then um, bought my first guitar amplifier for 40 bucks. So for 50 bucks, <laughs> I was off to the races. Wow, that's not bad. So, so how did you learn then? I learned just by sitting with my guitar and fumbling around. You know, I started playing with my thumb because I was a little kid. I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, I learned scales just by coming up with my own stuff on the guitar. I didn't have any. I had one guitar lesson that my parents took me to. And the guy made me buy the Mel Bay's book 101 mm -hmm. uh, and uh, try, you know, Silent Night, I think was the first song he tried to teach me. And I was like, this is, this is not fun. Will you teach <laughs> me uh, some Metallica or whatever it was at the time? And he said, oh, you know, we'll, you'll have to grow into those, you know, to those songs. So I never went back and I just sat at home and um, I'm glad I did because even even though I had been playing guitar for 10 years, my brother still said I sucked and couldn't play a song from start <laughs> to finish. I developed my own style, my own sound. And I think having the patience to get through those 10, 15 years of not sounding good, but delivering, getting your own sound was, was I think it was very beneficial for me because I was just so into it. I was so passionate. I wasn't going to quit. So when you were doing that, was that like a matter of just listening to records and trying to emulate what you were hearing? No, I was... I was so I thought I was so bad that anything I heard on a record, I thought there's no way I could do that. So I would just do my own thing. Oh. And uh, I was just hamming around. You know, the one thing that I got got decent at quickly was downstroke. So I would do the, you know, if I was going to emulate any players, it was going to be the speed metal guys. So I could. Well, that's Metallica. Like I didn't realize you could actually up pick for the first like six years of playing because I just did Master of Puppets all down. Like, wait, you can do this oh, yeah. easier than that. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. It was all about the speed metal for me at first. So, you know, that, that grew on me quick, but as far as like coming up with scales and parts and that was just experimentation. I remember years into it, I, I, well, I bought a guitar magazine and it showed the harmonic minor scale. I'm like, that's the scale I discovered on my own. That's yeah. what I like. That's the sound. So if you give yourself time, you'll stumble upon the theory um, just, just from having a guitar in your hands, but you just learn as you, you know, you learn what it is later on when you get more, uh, studied. Well, let me ask you this as a metal guy, mm -hmm. give me five records that anyone learning guitar <laughs> that wants to learn it from the metal approach should listen to. That's maybe not obvious, obviously master of puppets, obviously peace cells, <laughs> like all those. Ben, records. Don't answer the I'm question you're asking. I don't know about Mark. <laughs> what should I be learning? Oh, man. Well, you're going to know. I mean, I think the best metal riff record of all time has got to be Rain and Blood. Everybody knows that record. That's one of the best riff records, you know, for heavy metal, aggressive guitar. Sean's like, I do not know that record. <laughs> I, I'm the classical <laughs> musician in the group, so all this is education Harry King me. is tantamount to Yo-Yo Ma. How did you not know that? Fair <laughs> enough. I, I learned so much on this podcast, I'll be honest. But go on. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I would say... Um, you know, some of the bands that I got into were Forbidden, um, uh, geez, Testament, Exodus. We just had Skolnick on our show. Oh, yeah. He's a good Skolnick. man. Yeah. He's a good that's man. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. He's great. Um, you know, but you mentioned some of the bands. You know, you got your, your Peace Cells is a wicked record for metal. Um, Master of Puppets, Rain and Blood. Um, you know, some anthrax stuff, you know, just anything I could get my hands. Are we on talking Belladonna anthrax? Or are we cool through like the, 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 the Bush just, era? Cause I like the armored saint stuff too. So I got to tell you when I, I'm young enough where I'm Van Hagar and armored saint era anthrax, where I liked room for one more and only. And when Belladonna came back at first, it almost hurt my heart until I realized how awesome he is too. Well, fistful of metal going back even before Belladonna, you know, well, fistful of metal records got some of them. Some some mean songs on Listen, there. Before Blaze Bailey or Bruce, there was a Paul Diano. That's right. That's right. Hey, I'm with you though. On that when uh, I loved I loved Only Taking You Down on My Head. I thought that was a great tune. That whole record was good. Uh, Joy Belladonna. That's another gem of a human being. What a what a good guy. And we've uh, I've gotten to spend time with Joey and and talk shop. And I've heard him sing some Journey. On the on the shiprock cruises and he's all, he's just a good guy. He's in it for the right reasons. He loves well, me. Well, how about John Denae? Because he's a hometown guy from Shadows Fall. He was on our show. Watching him get to like, I first off, my favorite Anthrax solo is Breathing Lightning. 
which is a newer song with John on it. And I can't even believe it. Like the guy I used to go like watch at the clubs is the dude in Anthrax. Like, what do you think about this whole, like now that Belladonna came back, I feel like Anthrax is bigger than they've ever been. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, I think, uh, in Europe, you know, in Europe, the festivals are bringing bigger crowds than ever. Um, you know, I got to play guitar with Dan Spitz a few times. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's a trip to be able to hang out with. And, um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my, I think my second rock concert was, um, Anthrax. Um, I forget who they were playing. It might've been one of those big Slayer, Anthrax, Metallica, um, Alice in Chains, or I forget what the lineup was, but Anthrax was playing and I worked my, I was a little, a little shit kid. And I got up to the front row and everybody let me go because I was this little kid. And I remember being on the rails throwing my fist in the air and I Dan Spitz looks down at me and he's like, yeah. So I'll never forget that. And I, I it, think I told him. That's amazing. It's amazing you say that because I had, I feel like everyone that's been in a big band has had that experience. And it was Anthrax again for me, Anthrax and Pantera when they were doing, um, it was Anthrax, Pantera, Cold Chamber and a band called AC that we'll keep uh, abbreviated for now. And I remember that like, uh, you know, Dimebag Daryl came out and they and he was like bending up. And as he was bending up, he was like, someone was pouring like a black tooth grin in his mouth. And then he like pointed at me and then he was like, I'm going to bend this fucker up. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And then a dude jumped off the balcony into the pit and I'm like, oh my God. My this childhood metal. was so and different from And they shut down this. the venue, by the way, the Worcester <laughs> Auditorium. That was the last show they ever had there because Pantera was so ridiculous. They're like, we're not going to have people like this back again. And I was that's like, that's metal. If that's metal, I want to be a part of it. That's when you said this is what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> my parents Incredible. hated it. <laughs> I hit nope. it, it for my parents as, as best I could. But this is so cool. One thing I want to go back to is you said, you know, you didn't think you were good enough to learn other people's music. So you started by kind of writing your own. And that's kind of how you formed your voice. You know, I come from the totally opposite system of going to school, learning music theory. And now I find it so hard to write because everything is very much in the box. It's very square. You follow the rules. And as a classical musician that went through and listened to a lot of your music, I'm like, wow, everything that's done there on the guitar, the vocals is so unexpected to me because it just feels so out of the box. So I'd be interested to hear, you know, how you transitioned from starting to learn guitar to actually playing with bands and, you know, getting into the writing process with other people, because it's like, this seems so flipped from my experience growing up as a musician. Super interesting. It's funny you say that, because I've been told not to learn. You know, of course, I've learned a ton of theory at this point, because I've been playing for so long now. But as I was coming up as a songwriter, when I'd get into learning more, a theoretical approach to music people would say don't do it don't do it you're gonna you're gonna lose your thing you're gonna lose that off the cuff uh experimentation but the best way as a guitar player to do that i can learn everything there is to know about the guitar and, and standard tuning but as soon as i start just twisting strings and coming up with alternate tunings i'm back to square one everything is just a shape everything is a, is a blank canvas for me so you know a good thing to do as a songwriter is to is to I think go buy a slide book or get online and look up slide players. They have so many dozens of alternate tunings that they use that you can take. And I used to do this where I'd go one night, all right, I'm going to stick with this tuning. Then the next time I'm going to do this tuning, that tuning, that tuning. And usually with me, it's the first hour that I get the most inspiration out of. So, um, you know, just tips for songwriting for guitar players. Just tune your guitar different. Don't be I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to challenge That's interesting. you with that because my drummer, and I, this, this is not any way you want to start a sentence to a guitarist, but my drummer came to me and he goes, check out this baritone ukulele. I have it in drop slide A tuning. And I'm like, what? Baritone drop, ukulele. Drop slide A on a baritone ukulele. So I actually had an electric baritone ukulele made, which is basically just a tenor guitar, according to most people. Um, and I play it in drop slide tuning. And I'm like, this literally changed my world i couldn't even imagine if i changed something by like a half step or this or that but it is when you said like change the tuning change the tuning one (laughs) string and see how different it is and it's such a refreshing thing because i'll tell you from watching siobhan she has to unlearn things when you say improvise because she's been so conditioned to be like well it's got to be the perfect it's a fifth here you can't possibly go to the minor here that's just not correct it's just non-diatonic and i just say it's jazz baby and now she gets it if it doesn't make sense, it makes the most sense. <laughs> no sense makes sense, just like yeah. Charlie Manson always said. 
No, it's true. I mean, learning the rules first made it very hard to be creative. It's so it's it's impressive to me when I see someone that comes from the other side. You know, listen to Zach Wild break all the rules. Yeah, yeah. but as That's- as someone who who did kind of build up, you know, your own system of creating music and and playing guitar, uh, was it challenging or like kind of almost a relief to connect the theory to your guitar playing later in life? Uh, it was always always those kind of light bulb moments. You know, I, I always felt like um, when I found something out that was hidden to, to me mentally and I discovered it, it was always exciting. And then I could kind of apply that to what I was doing. Now when I learn stuff, it doesn't do anything but help. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's because I've, I'm so far down the road of, of knowing how to be creative at this point. I don't think anything's really going to uh, really change that now, I hope, you know, but yeah. – uh, you know, I feel comfortable with it now. I want to learn as much as I can at this point. You know, I even, um, I get bored with it though sometimes. You know, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll get on YouTube and somebody will be like, here's the best way to learn triads and every key on every string and every this and that. And I'll go, okay, I'll spend an hour doing this. You know what? After that hour, I didn't write anything and I'm kind of uninspired. So I'll go back to just swinging it. Well, you bring up a really good point because now we have the internet, right? And I'm sure you read all the stories like Eddie Van Halen keeping his back to the audience and no one saw him figure tapping and all that sort of stuff. And now they're like, you want to know how to play like Jason Becker? And it's like now everyone's it's like a slow mo demo video, Everest yeah. Because it's like, you know, yeah. I've watched Jeff Loomis sit there and stare at the camera and play Perpetual Burn, which as, you know, a kid, when you hear Cacophony, you go, no one can do that. But they can now. And so my question is to you, what excites you now knowing that there's some three-year-old kid in Japan that can play better than you and I put together? <laughs> what actually goes makes you go, man, I want to listen to that band or I want to listen to that song, regardless of the fact that, look, I feel like technically anyone could do anything at this point. So it's removed. Can you do it? It's what do you do with it? Yeah, I'd rather hear... Um you know, instead of hearing some wizard on the guitar that's just absolutely killing it, and there's so many of them out there that, that just, you know, make you want to put the guitar down, I'd rather hear that weird kid who's got a weird outlook on life, who's got a weird style, who's got, who's just comes, was born in a cave and, and, and comes up with the weirdest stuff you've ever heard. I'd rather hear the creativity in a guitar player than somebody who can just murder every scale. You know, I want to hear somebody who can take a scale and tear it apart, flip it upside down and do something you'd never expect out of it. That's amazing. Let me ask you a question about like your creative process. Cause like I said, you know, I was listening to a lot of your music as a newbie, let's say. And yeah, almost every- (laughs) Almost every chord change was so unexpected to me because I think of like, what's the traditional thing I'd expect in classical music or like your standard rock music, right? Um, So when you're, when you sit down to write or be creative, like how- how do you go about doing it? Is it something that's planned? Do you just get ideas off the cuff? Like how, how does something start with an idea and like, how do you formulate it into something later? It's a big um, question. <laughs> well, I do, uh, you know, when I, I do guitar clinics on tour and every um, clinic, I teach a big section on songwriting and I kind of give people kind of my, my songwriting one-on-one approach. And I think a simple way, if nobody's ever written on the guitar is to learn a right learn a right hand pattern, any kind of right hand pattern. And one, one easy one is like a six, say, you know, bad, I got on that, I got on God, I get on God, I get it with your right hand. And then, um, just, I would just flow with my left hand. Sometimes I'll just go in alternate tuning and I'll just put my fingers anywhere I want on the guitar. As long as I'm doing that cyclical pattern on my right hand, I'm going to fumble and fall by accident into some cool chord changes, into some cool voicings, um, and it's all by mistake. And a lot of times it will happen within the first five minutes. If you're sitting there doing it for an hour, you're just doing it wrong if you don't come up with anything cool. But also if you take an easy thing like arpeggiate four strings, you know, you're going to stumble upon something. Like if you, if you listen to our song, um, a Fortress, that's a perfect example of that. That's just me fumbling around the guitar, and that's that was the the biggest the, the title track of that record. Um, I did that on uh, a song called um, "Make It Right." Uh, those are two songs where you can hear that picking pattern and just sit, sitting there, just experimenting. It's all about experimentation, being inspired, um, but having some sort of direction. You can't just sit down with an instrument and just go, "Okay, I'm going to get weird and come up with something great." You have to have some sort of direction you know when you um, are when you are writing um how how many riffs and licks 
does it take? This isn't like a popsicle joke. Before you get to a song that you want to flesh out fully, like, are you a guy that jams, lets the voice memo roll and see if something pops up? Be like, all right, that's the direction I want to go. Or do you have a million voice memos and recordings that will never see the light of day because they just didn't take you anywhere? Yeah, I've got, um, so most of my writing happens in GarageBand and I use, Mm -hmm. um, I don't even, I just use the external mic on the, on the, on my computer. And, uh, I always, I always have my garage band open. I have a track open. I, it's ready to record. And when I get into writing, I'll just, uh, I'll start flowing as long as I can until I stumble upon something. I'll record it immediately. I won't, I won't work it out. Um, I won't write the lyrics. I'll just write them. To me, the most important thing is vocal melody. Um, so I'll write a part. And as soon as I first write that part, I'll record it. Cause sometimes if you work something out too much, you're going to perfect it too much and you're going to lose that initial spark that made it, that made it special. I, I think you brought up something really important. And, and another reason why I've always really appreciated your playing is you said something that you don't normally hear out of, let's say the super shredders. I like vocal melody because <laughs> you're thinking as a guitar player, but you're thinking to yourself, how do I assist, you know, the vocal melody. And in your case, one of those guys happens to be miles Kennedy, who in my opinion could be, you know, uh, one of the better singers out there. But let me ask you something about Mr. Kennedy because I don't know if this happened to you, but like this happened to me with Siobhan. I'm in the band, Lost Symphony, that we're in for like a year and a half and I'm like, I'm playing piano. I think I'm awesome. I'm killing it. And Siobhan's killing on violin because she's a virtuoso violinist. And then one day she sits down at the piano and then blows me away. But she's like, I'm not a pianist. When did Miles Kennedy ever sit down and show you how good he is at the guitar? Because I found that out like later in life. And I feel like if I were Mark Tremonti in a band with Miles Kennedy and I'm just like, oh, maybe we'll give this dude who sings really awesome a guitar and then he plays like that. How does that feel? It's just messed up. You know, it's messed up. He was in a band called the Mayfield Four. and um, So good, dude. So good. He's ridiculous. Strumming guitar, you know, Mayfield Four was a very unshowy music. You know, they were a great musical band, but they weren't like a shredding kind of thing. They were more just a cool, classy thing. And then Miles would shred it up on the vocals like crazy. Um, but his but, changes and his chord progressions as he's playing, that's the thing. So, like, a lot of people think you have to be, you know, this crazy player shredding. But for me, again, like in Metallica, it was always the fact that James Hetfield could play these super cool chords and riffs and stuff as he's singing these awesome melodies. You watch a guy like Miles or even a guy like Dave Matthews. I yeah. didn't appreciate his playing forever, but then oh, you're but like, wow, that dude's programmed his I'd, hands. I'd love, to, I'd love to hear you finish that, though, what, you know, hearing him in the previous oh, band there. that's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ben likes to interrupt everybody. You know, the funny funny thing is, is when I when I called him up and said, you know, would you like uh, to, to sit in with, with Alter Bridge, this band we're starting up, um, I had no idea he could play the guitar more than just chords. And, uh, and when uh, one night I was going to bed, and he was staying in the guest room underneath the staircase. And I heard this jazz coming out of the room. I was like, wow, that's cool. And I opened the door and there it's him playing guitar, playing jazz. I'm like, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> the jazz part or playing guitar? Yeah. Well, playing jazz guitar really, yeah. really, really well. Like really well. Like, <laughs> like when I saw it, I'm like, immediately you're better than I am. And you're, <laughs> you never even told me you played guitar well. That's what and, Siobhan did to me. Yeah. <laughs> So then we get the band going, and that was that was after we've already recorded our first record. So on the next record, it's like you are playing guitar on this record, and I feel like uh, it laid out very well for the band because on the first record, we're doing our videos, and he's standing there without a guitar as the lead singer because we're like, you know what? Most of the huge bands in the world, you got your Robert Plant, you got your Stephen Tyler, you got that front man, you got your Mick Jagger, that front man who can just entertain the crowd, and it's this huge entertaining thing. He was very uncomfortable with that. So when I saw how good he was on the guitar, our secret weapon to keep on changing as a band was to introduce him on the guitar on the second record. And then little by little, I'm like, wow, drop a solo, do a solo, do more solos, do more solos. And now um, we've developed so much as a partnership that uh, now when we do records, I'll write complete songs and he'll write complete songs and we'll just put them on a record. So it used to be, you know, I'll write the music, um, and Miles, you sing with me, and I'll write some melodies. You write some melodies. You, he wrote most of the lyrics. Um, but now, you know, we, we trust each other so much. And we want to support each other so much. I sing songs in Alter Bridge, 
he plays lead solo, you know, guitar solos in Alter Bridge. And now we just kind of write complete songs and perform them as, as Alter Bridge. I, I love that about that band, by the way, because that's my favorite part about a band like Queen. Because you can listen to a song and you go, that's a Roger Taylor song. That's a Freddie Mercury mm-hmm. song. And, you can, and you've allowed Miles to spread his wings, you know, because it could be one of those things where you go, I don't want that guy to play. But in, in the case of your band, like you guys have just stepped it up and, it's, and you can hear it in the songs. You go, that's a Miles song. That's a Mark song. And, but it works because now you've added a diversity to your band and it's like when you know when you first join bands, I feel like there's so much competition. It's so nice to finally be able to do a trust fall under the members of your band where you're like, why would I ever tell Miles Kennedy what to do? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny as you say that you you could tell which songs are mine and his. I think that's kind of flipped on its head now. Uh, when we did this record, our producer Elvis was like, I had I could not tell you who wrote what on this record. I thought this heavy track was you. I thought the ballad was Miles. Um are you so guys just trying to compliment each other by imitation? I think you just get into a mind space when you write in a certain group where you start just feeling that same, you, you get on the same page, you know, and you mm-hmm. start writing for other people's strengths. You know, you have their strengths in mind. I know that if I'm writing a vocal melody, I can make it hit the sky. I can do whatever I want with the vocal melody with an Alter Bridge. Whatever I can come up with in my brain, Miles can pull off vocally. Um, when I write vocal melodies, I write in my falsetto voice. I don't, I don't write in a full voice because if I'm writing for eight hours, as soon as I'm ah, singing for 30 yeah. minutes, my voice is gone. But if I sit there going, I'm going to sing ah, like that, I can sing as long as I want. So Miles can hit all those. Any note I come up with on my, my falsetto, Miles is killing. Do you have him as like a double agent? Because I know he plays with Slash, right? So like, do you ever go like, hey, man, what's the Slash trick? Can we steal some of Slash's mojo and put this just splash of Slash? Like, do we do we use him as a double agent ever? And when I say we, I mean you. I, I like that it's very different. You know, it's um, he tells me you know the Slash stuff is more like from the hip. It's more rock and roll. It's more, uh, you know, it's not. Uh, you, you know, you're not going to see. I, I don't think they add that. You know, neoclassical thing ever into there. It's it's more rock and roll and straightforward and i think slash writes pretty much all the music and then miles has to pretty much conform his his um vocal parts to what is there you know i think he can go like hey man what if it uh didn't go to this chord and went to that chord but i think for the most part um slash and the guys come up with this template that miles has to sing over whereas in alter bridge we both bring everything up from the ground floor individually and put it together so he, he has to tackle things in a very different way which is good so you I think the wanna... Slash repression brings out more in Miles? So he comes in like, I can breathe now. Slash isn't telling me what to sing, so I can just come in and I can we can do whatever we want, Mark, and you like frolic through the park together. That's the opposite. Slash lets him sing whatever he wants, but it's over, it's over music that he created. Whereas Fair Miles, like, here's this chord progression I'm going to sing over. I think in the Slash world, he's singing over whatever music was created by the band. So I'm glad it's done that way. I don't want both bands to sound alike. I'm fighting hard enough to make Tremonti not sound like Ultimate. I was just going to ask, yeah, like, when you are to. writing, you know, in a riff or something comes up, is there like a, a line you have to go, all right, that's tipping more towards the Alter Bridge direction? Or is that, you know, I'm going to keep this one for me. You know, how, how do you define that? It's easier to say what's not going to be Alter Bridge because the Tremonti stuff can lean he- much heavier than the Alter right. Bridge stuff. Yeah. So as soon as, I, as soon as I start seeing the head banging in my head and the, and the, <laughs> and the horse gallops, yep. I know... <laughs> I know my rhythm section is going to look at me like, what? Do you change what <laughs> guitar to use? You go, this is my heavy guitar. Now I have my Santana. So I just play more Carlosy. And then you have your other guitar. And it's like, now I play more, you know, light. Like, do, do your guitars dictate, like, if it's for Alter Bridge or if it's for Tremonti? Break out the my EMGs w- versus the PAFs, you know? <laughs> my Warlock, break that out. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The, the metal can happen on any guitar. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. If I'm on my ukulele, I can come out with some metal for sure. State of mind. Fair enough. That's interesting, though, like establishing a style. Is is that something that, you know, you you established right from the beginning of, like, your solo project that this is, like, I'm going to start my first record as being kind of more metal than my other thing? Like, how, like how do you kind of establish that genre within your own project? 
Uh, well, it, it was kind of born out of having all these ideas that I'd constantly bring to the guys and be like, all right, guys, I got this new song. So I got to turn this ringer off and be professional. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I was enjoying we are, it. We are not professionals, so we, don't worry about we it. We always have something going on. <laughs> Is it Steve Wood asking if you're on the podcast? <laughs> oh, those, those are my emails. <laughs> I'm sure Steve-O's watching, right? Hi, Steve-O. <laughs> He's always watching. Uh, but no, the band was started out of um, you know I would go to the I would go to uh, the guys and on, on my first record all I was there's a lot of riffs like like the title track all I was riff I loved playing that riff and I'd always bring it to, to the guys and be like all right guys I got this new song like no I've heard that riff six times you just call it a new song and put a new chorus with it and after it kind of failed to to get through to those guys that many times and that would happen maybe on eight of the however many tracks from the first record, I put all those tracks on my, on my record and just, cause they were all the down pickings kind of stuff that those guys. Does Wolf Van Halen ever judge you when you're down picking? No, he, he doesn't. No, he, you know what? I, I, no, he's a great, he's a great picker, but down pickings. I was, I was, I came out of the womb down picking. That's, that's kind of, <laughs> okay. I love that dude. I came out. That's the blabbermouth headline. Mark yeah. Tremonti came out of the womb <laughs> down picking. That was my, you know what? When you're a young guitar player, the first things that you excel at always are kind of your anchor as a player. Down that's picking. I always feel like that's my home base. So it's, that's, yeah. that's, um, and you just, just because you mentioned it, Ben, uh, Wolfgang Van Halen, uh, he played on, uh, your record, correct? He, he did, uh, the second and third record. Right. Uh, what was that experience like? Cause he's killing it right now. He's everywhere. Oh, it was awesome. You know, when I did the first record, it was just me and Eric and Garrett. Um, and then Eric tracked the bass on the record. And then, uh, when we, when we went to do our first tour, um, we, Brian Marshall was playing with us and he had some personal stuff happen like last minute. We were going on tour pretty much the next day. And, um, and I think Eric told me, Hey, Wolfie's in town just jamming with the seven dust guys. They're, they're in the studio and he's got his pickup truck with all his bass gear, just jamming with them. So um, I called him up and said, you know, we need a bass player for this tour. And he had, we had given him the record like a month before. So he had already learned it. <laughs> so he, he's like, hell yeah, came over and rehearsed it with us. And, uh, that kid can learn like lightning quick. So he learned the stuff we put on a show the very next night. Nobody would have ever known he wasn't in the band. And That's then, uh, and then he recorded the next two records with us. We had a great time. And I think it was just time for him to do his thing, you know, with, with his solo projects done so well. And, uh, he, uh, you know, why is Wolfie Van Halen going to be the bass player in the Tremonti band? You know, he's <laughs> going to be the singer and songwriter of his own band. So, Well, I mean, that's, did you have to, because one of the things I see from the sidelines, and look, I saw him on the first Van Halen tour he did, and I'm like, this dude can play. And I'm look, obviously I'm a staunch Van Halen fan, so, you know, in my heart, like, you know, Michael Anthony, heart. But, like, the guy can play. But I all I see is people like, oh, he's just, you know, living in his father's shadow or this and that. Like, but first off, just genetically speaking, <laughs> I feel like he's already winning. And then secondly, <laughs> I saw him with you guys, and I heard his record, and not surprising. But how, far, how long has it been of you defending? I feel like everyone has to defend this kid because he's living in the shadow of one Edward Van Halen. But, man, I don't know how much better you could be on your own. No, and, and what he shows you on his record and, and with touring with us is just a, you know, just a tiny bit of what he can do. When he's, uh, when he's just sitting there in a the room with you practicing, he'll throw on, you know, Animals as Leaders or something, and he'll, he'll air drum the whole thing, or he'll get on the drums and play the whole thing, or he'll turn on Periphery, or one of the, you know, these progressive bands with crazy beats and crazy time signatures, and he'll just mimic it immediately. He's just got that. You know, I don't, I don't have that, uh, I don't have that part in me that can pick that out that quickly. It would take me a month to learn one of those songs, but he picks it up really quick. And, um, he shreds, but he shreds more in a, uh, he's not your typical shredder. He's just different. He's very, very tight, very precise, great drummer, great bass player, great singer. Um, yeah, he's, he's, his record, his solo record, everything tracked on there was, was his voice, guitar, 
bass guitar drums. Wow, that's something. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Did dad ever come to the gigs and you're like, oh, this is the parent-teacher conference I was worried about? He came to some shows. You know, it was the kind of thing where I'd get, get on the tour bus, you know, kick off, you know, just get on there and Eddie's sitting there. Hey, <laughs> 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 You mean you're on his bus now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it immediately makes you nervous, you know. It was great. He was a very nice guy, but, uh, you know, intimidating because he's just such a star and such a legend. Um, there's a great pic. I, I wish... I wish I knew where, where it was, but there's a picture of us doing sound check and we'd have these sound check parties with a couple hundred people and they're all right in front of the stage watching sound check and Eddie Van Halen is 50 feet behind him, just sitting there smiling, watching his son sound check. Nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew that if the, one of them turned around, they would see Eddie Van Halen. Um, it was just such a, such a cool shot. Like if one wow. person turned around, it would be like zombies coming after him. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's incredible. It really is. <laughs> I'm just soaking that in for a moment, Mark. Sorry. Yeah. My brain was just thinking to myself, what if Eddie was just in the back? It's always my mom. It's my mom in the back, like with the smoky bar. Like, oh, that's my mom. It's never Eddie Van Halen. It's <laughs> never been Eddie Van Halen. And unfortunately, it sounds like it will never be Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, I've got, you know, I've got some great Eddie Van Halen stories, though. Like one, one time I was in the dressing room doing a show in LA and uh, I was warming up. I was, I was getting my left hand going. I'm just doing legato exercises, picking every now and then. Were you using your PRS? I was. I was. And I see this person kind of hovering next to me, and I didn't know who it was. And then I hear, you don't pick very much, do you? And I turn around and say, Van Halen. I'm doing my legato warm-up. I'll, I'll get to my picking in a minute. Um, I remember we were doing a show opening up for Van Halen, and uh, – we had just finished sound check. Eddie walks over. He's like, who's the guitar player? Like, uh, me. And he's like, all right, come over here. And he takes me over to his uh, draped off guitar world next to the stage. And um, he's showing me his amplifiers. He's like, yeah, here's my new amplifiers, the 5150. You know, let me get your address. I'll ship you one. I'm like, that's killer. I'm like, I love your guitars too. He's like, what color do you like? I'm like, black. <laughs> next show we played madison square garden and we get an and we were we were having a band argument back in the creed days and we hear this knock on the door and we're just blowing it off because we're kind of arguing another knock on the door blow it off and then the door just pops open it's eddie van halen with a guitar in his hand and guitar case in his hand he comes in opens it up taps on it goes feels right to me here you go and uh gives me a guitar which I cherish having that guitar. And then after like peace in the middle East. So like you could be arguing like, dude, I'm not playing that fucking song ever again. And then Eddie walks in, plays <laughs> eruption and all is good. It's like a visit from it. an angel. Kumbaya. Yeah. I, I could show you that guitar right now. If you want to yes. See yeah. Let's see it. Is that a joke? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I got to change to my black PRS now. Yeah. Go. We got to do the guitar rotation. <clears throat> so obviously oh tune into the YouTube uh, yeah, channel. and all I Some got great my visual- black PRS to match his Eddie Van Halen. So visual Paul Smith, if you're watching, <laughs> no, I'm more legion than Mark Tremonti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the case I have to write what they are. It says Black Wolfgang from Eddie Van Halen. Wow! <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> this is a great reveal. Oh my god, yeah. my heart's palpitating. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Oh my god. Wow. That's amazing. I still have this on here, you know, because it's, it's the... Uh, oh, yeah. Board cover to keep it fresh. I don't, I don't play this guitar. Well, it's the spinal tap. You shouldn't even look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I, have this, I have this in the case, you know, my... Oh, wow. It's a tribute issue of guitar player. Incredible. That's amazing, dude. Yeah. It really is. Definitely. Unfortunately, let me guess, though, because I feel like this is a story I always hear some... So Eddie gives you the amp, and then you plug into it, and unfortunately, you just sound like Mark <laughs> Tremonti. <laughs> the funny thing is, I never got the amp. Liar, Eddie! <laughs> Liar! <laughs> we never connected on it. We just connected on the guitar. Uh, another cool story Dang. about the guitar is after the show, um, we're all backstage, and at Madison Square Garden, there's press everywhere. I mean, there must have been yeah, hundreds of sure. people down underneath the, where all the cars come in and out. And Eddie was there with his wife and little baby Wolfgang Van Halen. He must have been six years old, seven, tiny little guy. And uh, he's walking with his family, catches me out of the corner of his eye, 
walks through a hundred press and special guests and promoters to come over to me and tell me, Hey, uh, I forgot to tell you, you got to take two of those springs off of, of Floyd Rose to make it, you know, play like mine. All right. He gives me a kiss on the cheek, walks off with his, with his family, gets in the, gets in the van. I was like, are you legend? Are you kidding me? What a legend. That's (laughs) outrageous. By the way, here's my black guitar that Paul Reed Smith gave. Oh, wait, Paul didn't give it to me. I actually bought it, but it was almost as cool. Yeah, don't make up things. (laughs) That looks like one of of Miles' favorite guitars. He calls it the mule. I got to tell you, something I've learned about Paul Reed Smith and having lots of them, I feel like the ones that have the plain tops work harder for tone. Like all my super pretty ones with like the Brazilian rosewood neck and all the nice stuff and the 10 tops, they don't sound as good as just like the standard... I'm like, I hate to say it, but like the more expensive it is, it's like this one tries. It's like the adopted animal that's like, I don't have the nice top, dad, but I'll make it sound great. Well, if it tells you anything of all the PRSs I have, the one I'm playing on, you know, I could play on any of them. The one I practice on in here is this one. It's just, it's black. Oh, oh wow. we're twins. We're twinsies. <laughs> it's great. But hold on. But you know what I know what I feel like? And I feel like you should tell this to Paul. I miss the sweet switch. Because I'm way too simple. I feel like the tone knob is entirely too much control that I don't need to have. I feel like up or down is all... Like it's, I played Contra <laughs> up, down. That's all I need. Like, this is Fendery. This is Gibson-y, except better. And that's all I need. Why did he have to put a whole tone on there? It's too confusing for me. It's way too much. I like that Eddie Van Halen took the tone out. I never use the tone knob. Only thing I do is live. I've, I have a, a crazy habit of non-stop turning knobs up 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 if i have a second where i can grab a knob to a knob volume knob i'm turning them up it's like a nervous you should do what yeah. billy does, where he just has a, a switch or a knob that does nothing so when people say can you just do it just like roll the knob <laughs> up and it's literally not even attached <laughs> that's an idea you know i have i have to take, take my knobs off and put uh belt or something behind it and glue them pretty much in place so they don't go up and down yeah. Interesting. This is fascinating yeah. to me because I come from the world of acoustic violin where tone is only in your bow and in your left hand. Do you glue like, you your don't bow? Have knobs. No, I mean, you have no knob. Like, even just the idea of, like, I just recently built a pedal board for electric violin, and even the idea of, like, designing a tone with something that isn't the instrument is just fascinating to me. I want, so are I you using him. the whammy pedal with the violin? I do sometimes, but no, I mean, I have, oh. you know, the, the reverb, the delay, the uh, a wah pedal. I'm so excited. So maybe Mark can 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 get excited with us so mark she's played with uh star set and uh trans-siberian orchestra and all these crazy bands but we when she came down to record with our band lost symphony uh she has a five string electric violin and we put her through a kemper and we're like what can you do and let me tell you it's pretty amazing in fact i'm having her fly to to boston so we can do a jason becker tribute and our guy was like well who do you want on guitar and we played with jeff loomis and all these people I'm like, nobody who's going to play guitar is going to do it like Jason, and everyone's done that. But if we do it on the violin... Oh, shit. It might... Right? Oh, uh, shit. Siobhan, are you, have you learned all of Speed Metal Symphony yet? Not yet. No, I was working on Perpetual Burn, because that's my fave. But what, but what about the Marty parts? Can't you play them at the same time? Oh, my gosh. We'll see. <laughs> working on it. <laughs> Marty's, like, not good enough of a bend. Siobhan. Yeah, True. I don't think I'll ever please Marty. Let's be honest. (laughs) I don't think that's possible. (laughs) Oh, but anyway, I digress. So yeah, whatever we were talking about before, maybe Corey can get us back on track. One thing that that came up a little while ago, and I I didn't want to like interrupt the discussion because it's not a big deal, but you mentioned that you had this, what, like $50 guitar that you started on. Um, $10 guitar. $10, my bad. It was 50 for the guitar and the amp, right? Something like that. But uh, we... Our last podcast we did with um, Brock Richards, which is Siobhan's husband, husband. who is in Starset. Um, And also a PRS guitar player. He finally got his free PRS, as I told him. By the way, (laughs) notice how it turned white? I love the white one. It's beautiful. But uh, we had a discussion on the show where he talks about, you know, the importance of getting past your first guitar to like a quality instrument to really kind of break so you can actually enjoy the fruits of your labor kind of and and experience the motivation of playing on a nice instrument. How long was it before you upgraded that first guitar and was that like a light bulb moment or, or was that first guitar, you know, just good enough? My first three guitars were pretty bad. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> I, uh, I sold my first $10 guitar for a hundred bucks. Nice. Turned to a- profit. <laughs> <laughs> I sold it at a pawn shop and I bought a, um, 
with the money, I bought a Tokai, a Japanese Strat style with the Charvel straight. Mm -hmm. It was a metal looking, a white guitar. And then, um, and then I, I used to walk around amp shops and the coolest amps were the ones with the highest wattage to me. I didn't know which was good or not bad. I'm like, this one's 50 watts, but this one's 80. This I'm one's using a-, a QSC head that's 1,000 watts with my MT2 and it's the most badass thing ever, Mark. <laughs> hey, bigger watts, I thought better amps. So I yeah. finally bought a 100-watt crate. Uh, it was badass. It was the XP100 or something like that. I'd love that death gray uh, one that just had. Yeah, dude, red. red. That, that was the standard red. metal amp forever. Did you just press the button and there you were. And I had the Orion metal master pedal. Um, and I actually had that pedal going into, uh, when we started my first professional band and they used to make fun of me because my tone was super thin, just straight up scooped metal. Yeah. They're like, use a zoom <laughs> five Oh five. It's the real deal. <laughs> scooped metal. <laughs> Now, now, now! I wish I had all the gear I have now. Like if I have just the oh man, I can't pull my computer out. But just, just like the pedal pedals I have now are just <gasps> oh my uh, god, wow! A wall yeah. of pedals that is very cool. Are you a tone tweaker? Like, or do you take a lot of time dial, or do you kind of get your ballpark and say, all right, I'll I'll kind of hone this in? Well, I'm a huge tone fanatic, but it's yeah. um, it's not. It's not with pedals and stuff. It's just the tone of the head and the right. Um, I think less is more. I think uh, in any band I'm in, I'm the guy that's kind of the meat and potatoes, heavy chunk and stuff. And then Miles would do all the, he calls it the fairy dust on top of the effects. <laughs> Same with Eric. Eric will do, um, you know, the, the bluesy bends and the tweaked um, arpeggiated stuff on top of the course, chord progressions and stuff like that. But I'm all, all I could think about when you turned your computer was, where's the noise coming from? That's literally all I think when I see that many pedals. I'm like, because oh. I remember seeing Steve Vai back in the day, and when he was he couldn't play because something to shut off, and he's unplugging pedals. His guys unplugging pedals, and it turned out he just had a bad wah pedal. And I'm like, never again. So I got rid of everything other, even my tuner at one point. I was like, this is sucking to, like like tone. Like I just felt like even the the true bypass. Why is this sound shitty to me? And then all I used was delay, and that was it. I had to leave because I, I, I'm not that good. I'm not Steve I. I have no right using anything else. I'm the same as you. All I, you know, I have all these pedals, but they're kind of writing devices. I use live. Pretty. I just use a delay in my effects loop and a wall pedal on the floor. Yes! Exactly! <laughs> no, I, Kem- I use a Kemper you- instead of an amp. But yeah, I know that you're awesome. an amp guy. So. No, but uh, I'm, know, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. There's a Kemper sitting, sitting right here, but it's not mine. Uh, is, do you see it? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. The, the toaster. That's, that's that my other cute. guitar player, Eric's Kemper. And he's, you know, it's fun. You know, it's a fun thing to track demos with. And you can get a lot of Kempers are awesome. It's just, um, I'm just such a sucker for, for a big tube amp. It's just yeah. like, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's going to be like an old muscle car one day. You know, it's like, I played real tubes. Well, it's funny <laughs> you say that because I have a room right over here that has 25 full stacks that I never turn on because I think to myself, they are going to be like old muscle cars. But then it's like, do I use those awesome tubes in my VHT or my Bogner or my Splon or do I just leave them until someone goes, this is just a copy of that. And I go, but I have the real thing and I turn it on and then it just explodes because the tubes (laughs) have too much dust. (laughs) No, I think the tubes will just, they'll they'll age perfectly. I think tubes tubes are great. You can have a seven-year-old tube and it'll be just right. I, I wanted to ask you about, so you said you use a lot of the pedals for writing inspiration. So how, like, you know, you showed us you have this wall of pedals. So how do you, like, what's the process? You're like, okay, I'm going to pick this one and this one and put them together and twist some stuff and see if I get an inspirational sound. Like, I'm just curious. How does that, how does that start? Um, lately, I like the weirder pedal, the better. Um, one pedal I was really inspired with on this last record was the, uh, let me see if it's up here. Um, and they'd like to plug because they were nice enough to give me a batch of their pedals. But this pedal right here is sick. The transmitter. Earthquaker wow. devices. They make crazy shit, man. So transmitter, okay. They're really good at coming up with pedals that are very unique and will inspire you to do something different. Um, I'm not going to really sit and write with a, an overdrive pedal or a, or a delay pedal. It's 
it's going to be more of like a, you know, a, a wild pedal like that. That's really. So what does that me. one do, for example? It's hard to say. You'd have to hear it. It's just this okay. crazy. Um, I can't. I don't even know what it does. It just makes it. <laughs> <a killer noise. laughs> Interesting. Well, you know, have you checked out the Electro Faustus stuff? Because I'm not a pedal guy, but they have. All kind like the first thing that I saw that draw drew my attention is it had there was a thing that had springs on it so I'm like okay I'm in it springs and I'm like wait it doesn't do anything it's just a filter where you put your guitar or whatever pedal through it and then you just fuck with the springs and make noise I'm like that sounds like something Frank Zappa would have done like by like making this microphonic or whatever I'm like and then they have this thing it's called like the electro whip so you basically take like an old school whip and and make that crazy noise, but with your guitar. So imagine, like, your friend or your guitar tech is going like this, and that's controlling your solo. And I'm like, I never would use a pedal, but I would use that and probably break my nose. Yeah, you know, as long as something like that's on one song. You can't do it on ten songs, you know, but yeah. you can use it in the chorus or the bridge of oh, one song. You clearly, you clearly don't said. know You clearly don't know Ben. He's going to put it on everything he can. until <laughs> Listen, Melodica needs to be on yeah. everything, Corey. Right. Melodica goes, should be on everything. There's, there's far too much Melodica phases. on the Lost Symphony records. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah, changed I think colors, that, guys, by the way. It did. Yes. The classical music version of this, if, if you guys haven't seen, John Cage, like the composer that famously wrote the like silent piece, he would set up cactuses and like put microphones by them, just like fling cat cacti and like just create sounds with the cacti and it was like this huge thing so anyway <laughs> how do you create sound with classical. cacti wait I, now i need to know this what the fuck are you talking about? i don't know like just making sounds like you just like tap it and fling it I, there's a whole video i'll send it <laughs> is this it like to installation you. art is this music is it like <laughs> kind somewhere of, but in it's between? live performance yeah performance art performance art okay. anyway pre-guitar <laughs> pedals so <laughs> Just some tips for the next Tremonti record there. Cactus, <laughs> yes, I'm down. Amplified cactus. <laughs> Actually, so what's the order of price? So you've been talking about tone, and I know that you're a tone junkie, and I absolutely have always appreciated your tone. And I- I'm with you in the in the amp, the keep it simple. What's the most important order of operations from your fingers to your guitar to your uh you know to your amp? Uh, to your pedals, to you know your cables, because so many people are like, "Oh, dude, you have the monster cables, or do you have the right pedal, the right amp?" This and sounds like, like my me, husband. I who feel like obsess. first yeah. off, tones in your hands, but then like if you have a good guitar and you have a good amp, you can make it sound like Van Halen if you're Eddie. Like, what do you think of the order of operations as far as if you're on a desert island? What's the first thing on your rider? <laughs> um, well, the guitar and the amp are kind of equal, you know, to me. You know, I could I could make a uh, I could play a one of those little uh, little kitty guitar. What do they call it? Hello Kitty guitars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I play that through an Ubershaw. I'm just going to sound heavy. But if I play a PRS Tremonti model through a crappy little Gorilla or something, it's not going to sound as heavy. So you got to kind of, I don't know, what do you want? You want the badass amp, the badass guitar? If you have both, I think something that uh, I found is when it comes to tubes, I always sound. I always like a six L six style tube way more than I like an EL thirty four. I don't like the squishy stuff. I like the bold, ballsy. Um, Why don't you go big like a KT eighty eight, like a VHG, like a man put bass tubes in there and just say fuck it and step on everyone's dicks? <laughs> you know the the KT eighty eights to me are stiff. Like they're very. They're I don't know. You're stiff, not- Mark. Come on, <laughs> lighten up. You got an EL thirty four in your life. They're heavy. They're heavy. KT eighty eight. But they're not. I'm not going to be soloing on a KT88. I don't know. I like I like a six L six is more a mixture of sweet and heavy at the same time. Um, and then you know cables to me. I'm not. I'm not. I don't know. I don't have a good enough ear to say that this Planet Waves is not as good as a Mogami cable. I think they all kind of sound. If they're if they're not a shitty cable, they're going to sound pretty similar. That being said. A five-foot cable is not going to sound like a 50-foot cable. The 50-foot cable is going to sound darker. So if you're playing on a huge stage, keep keep that well, in mind. That's, yeah. that's the idea of the sweet switch, Mark. Don't you know that? It's supposed to emulate the long cable length that was braided of Jimi Hendrix. So when you that's roll right. it off, you get that yeah. same sound. So instead of having the ear-piercing sound that you would normally have with a Fender and a Marshall, you have Hendrix tone. That's Thank right. you, Paul Reed Smith. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to get one of those sweet switches. Dude, bring! I, I literally want to be the nerd that wears like the bring back the sweet switch shirt. <laughs> you would I, wear that shirt. I, I yeah. love I love that stuff. And in fact, um, I, I truly believe that part of the best tone of Eddie Van Halen is having 
no tone. Hey, his, his tone, I think, is all about uh, having it sound like the amp's about to die, pushing it to its limit. Well, did you remember when he said how he got, like, using his Variac and then lied to people about one step and everyone blew up their fucking amps? Did you hear about that? <laughs> he, well, he used to use a, ver uh, a Variac, well, I think it is what it is, where people, he made his amp distort lower volumes and then yeah. told people, like, oh, I did it, like, 220 or 240. Like, one step wrong to the sound, but it basically would blow up everybody's amps. So when they first, like, demystified <laughs> the brown sound, it wasn't the brown sound, it was the electrocute your fucking ass sound. <laughs> Which is what I love about Eddie Van Halen and why I, YouTube was great before it existed because it's it's like, here, you want to get that sound? Just electrocute yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you go chasing that sound and a lot of people don't realize, like I didn't realize that if you take a, uh, say, uh, an old Marshall like he used to play or a 5150 and you put it through a finished 30, I don't think it sounds good. And you wonder why it doesn't sound like Eddie Van Halen. And I go over to John Connolly's house from Seven Dust, one of my good buddies. He's like, no, no, he used 20-watt speakers. Those speakers need to be pushed to their limits to get tone out of them. It's way underpowered. to do Those, those finished 30s are way too overpowered to, to emulate what he was going for with those 20 watts. Dare, dare I take it one step further? I have found going through tents that are 20 watts is even cooler in the sense that, like you're you're get you get a little bit more mid bass, and then a lot of the noise, the sound you get out of a twelve, as far as that low stuff, is what. Well, Corey, if I sent it to him, would just take out of it anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all know you you want to have the best, most huge guitar sound. You have to actually take out a lot of those frequencies that, like, when you're playing by yourself, it's going. Ch -ch 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 -ch. That's not yeah. cool in a mix, bro. And that's why I like. Yeah, I try not to solo any any guitarist tracks when they're in the studio. <laughs> That's your bass player. Try not to solo ever. <laughs> but when you have those Ampeg um, cabinets with the eight tens in there, is there any sub other than a ten-inch speaker? No, right? There oh, might be a five. Some of them come with five tweeters. Isn't it funny how a bass guitar with all the low frequencies would come out of a smaller speaker, just a bigger yeah. cabinet? I have a I have a little Mark Bass two ten, and it sounds massive. It's it oh. blows my mind. Well, that's Wait, because if you learn about sound, bass is omnipresent. So you don't, and in fact, the ten, whatever. <laughs> it's like God, it's, it's, okay? Yeah, it's, He's it's, it's omnidirectional. Omnipotent. omnipotent. Bass is omnipotent, it, yeah. Bass thinks about you, it thinks about me, and it does its own thing. But I find that tens, it's, it's a much better way to get that clear punch. And and honestly, like when I feel like I'm standing next to a 15, it just sounds like the, the low crossover to fieldy from corn. And it's like, that's cool for corn, but for almost anything I'd ever want to do, it's just too much. I tell you, the, the best sounding, the amp that I've played more than any other amp in the world, it's not even a 10. Oh, yeah. Oh. Those things are awesome. That's every, every rock and roll dressing room across the, any tour, there's got to be. You know, Ingve has those inside his like 50 Marshall stacks. It's just one cube. They have yeah. with an SM57 <laughs> off stage. Yep. They sound great. No, you. You track with a micro cube, nobody would ever know it. They say, "Wow, what a great tone!" Well, we've gotten yeah, to a wow. point where, like, technology. Like, listen, man, I bought a Boss Katana, okay, and I have a million gazillion amps, and I'm pretty stoked with how that thing sounds. My buddy was using it as a guitar tech, and I'm like, I get tour with this. Like, if if my amp broke in the middle of a gig, which doesn't happen because nobody cares about my Journey cover band, but <laughs> if that ever happened, like, I could just pull out that Katana, and it would just be everything I'd need. I don't know if I've ever played a Katana. I've seen Dude. them. Dude, check it out. Like I'm, t it's just one of those things where like now you buy a new car and there's just a, this standard. You even go into a Kia and you're like, this thing's nice. It's like the Katana. It's like, oh, it's all of my boss pedals in one thing and it costs two hundred dollars and it's a hundred watts and it's actually loud and it sounds good and has headroom. Holy shit! Wow, just a good way to try out boss pedals to begin with, and a way to not have to use cables to make the noise that boss pedals always do when you use the wrong power cable. Oh, yeah. And you're hey, plugged man. into the light switch that's got to the lamp that your girlfriend's using. It's like, <laughs> that's oh, my life, dude. Those cheap old boss pedals are just as good as some of the new fancy boutique pedals. Some of those, some of the pedals yeah. are great. The, the, when it says the, made in Japan. Hey, there, there are some good old pedals for sure. They yeah. stood the test of time. 
Certainly Siobhan, how are your pedals working with the violin? What, what ones are you using? Maybe you so, can illuminate well, for us. Well, I'll say I cheated a little bit because like I mentioned, or someone mentioned, my husband's a guitar player. So he's also a tone Is that what freak he's telling and- you now? <laughs> so he almost wouldn't even let me build my own pedal board because he just usurped the whole operation. He was like, oh, you're going to have a stereo feed and all this stuff. <laughs> so I, I have like a lot of Strymon pedals, actually. So I've got, oh. I'm just looking at it over here. I've got the, the Timeline, the Big Sky... Um, I've got this D&M drive pedal, uh, Riverside, another Strymon. Do you um, like write Paganini, Schubert, Vivaldi, like on them for your different patches? (laughs) I really should. The hardest part for me, I mean, these are like so incredible. Like, I mean, the the timeline, I mean, it's a huge pedal, you know, and like you've got all these different banks that you can keep. So for me, it's so hard to just keep track of where I save stuff. And I'm still learning how to use it, to be honest. So Yeah, that's the problem. I don't want a, any pedal board that I have to remember anything. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? One of my favorites right now is this this Boss Harmonist pedal. Because for violin, like you could do an entire solo show just like using this octave transposition and all the different chords and stuff. But does it ever do bang. a wrong harmony where you're like, it went to the natural seventh instead of the minor seventh and well, it you, should have you, been the minor seventh you program, not the natural seventh. You program the key so it'll follow whatever key you're in. Unless you play out a tune, then you're just screwed. <laughs> what if you want to play jazz? <laughs> then you're, then, then you're probably not using a pedal board. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're playing with no vibrato. I wonder if you could fit a tone wood amp on your violin. Ooh. I don't you know. Guys, the, those are, can, yeah, yeah. They're like reverb out of nowhere. That's a jaw dropping. When people hear that for the first time, they don't know what the hell hit them. Siobhan, it just it sticks right on the guitar. It It would go on the back of an acoustic guitar. Really? They're amazing. They they're like black magic. It really is. Technology, like we put a man on the moon sixty years ago, fifty years ago, and now I don't. Wow. Okay. Oh yeah. It's that big, so it's it's something that could fit in a violin. It's just absolutely. It's got an X brace on the inside that this magnetizes to. And normal guitar tone. Now. Wow. See, what I think needs to happen, Mark, is we need to call your friend Paul Reed Smith and say we need an electric violin <laughs> yeah. for her. Because we were actually talking about how they don't really have a good electric violin. I'm like, baby, you should get one with the birds. <laughs> I've got an electric uh, mandolin. Well, nice. Okay. Halfway That's there. awesome. <laughs> that sounds like musical torture because they're so small. No, but this thing, this is amazing because I mean, a lot of times like gigs for me, right? Like I have this pedal board, which is awesome. But like when the second I walk into some gigs, I'm like, all right, here's my pedal board and all my other stuff. It's like, all right, no, yeah. that's too much gear. So that seems like you just plug in and it's, you've got like at least some basic effects. Yeah, it's incredible. It just comes right out of the guitar. Wow. Uh, not, not even going through, you know, speak or anything. Yeah. It's yeah. so inspiring as a, as a writer to sit there with those effects pouring out of your. That's opinion. awesome. Here's yeah, the I would absolutely get that. Uh, PRS Mando. I didn't know that PRS made a mandolin. Did you guys know this? No, oh. I imagine it's a total private stock custom thing for Mark Tremonti. Am I correct, Mark <laughs> Tremonti? You know what? It, it is, but it was not. I never played it. I, it was always something um, Eric and my band would play or. Oh, maybe Miles might have played it for a little bit. Well, but. hold on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my electric baritone <laughs> ukulele. That's, that's with, bad. With, with 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 the the pale moon ebony and the big block abalone inlays. You know, with, with the Gretsch body, of course. You know, you got you got to do yeah. that. Not not as cool as the 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 eagle headstock for Mr. Reed Smith, but right <laughs> up there. Rarely do I pull out the PRS mandolin and somebody matches me with a kick. <laughs> well, you haven't. This met is your guy. Because I'm the obnoxious guy that's like, it's about me, Mark. This interview is really about me, not about you and your mandolin, which is way cooler than mine. Yeah. Which is a perfect time as Ben starts to take over the show for us to say that this is the end of the show for our first hour, part one, this is the end. with the incredible Mark Tremonti. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And we're looking forward to diving a little deeper in part two. Guys, Where check out. Where can we find your stuff, Mark? Is it just like marktremonti.com? Do we just put up the bat just, signal to Steve Wood and it just says Tremonti <laughs> to the sky? What is the centralized hub? I think so. You know, the only social media stuff I do is on Instagram. I'm just, I think I'm Mark T. Tremonti. Um, and then uh, Mark, I guess Mark or Tremonti.com, MarkTremonti.com. I bet a quick Google search will solve that. I hope one day I'm so famous that I don't have to remember my own .com. Yeah, I think... Off the bridge something.com or .net or .com. I don't know. I... I, uh, 
I'm Type so it bad. into Google. Yeah. It'll find it for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I think Google will be your friend in this. Out, and uh, we will obviously have links uh, posted below the episode. Visit uh, 2020-d.com. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. And uh, we're looking forward to part two with Mark Tremonti. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 79 featuring Brock Richards of Starset. Check it out. <laughs> the first time I like, I'm like hiding backstage. We're playing outdoor. It's rock on the range. And like I'm hiding behind my guitar vault. I'm warming up. And then like, I'm like, all right, this is our time. Our countdown's coming. And I walk out. And the second I turn the corner, I look up and there's like literally a stadium full of people. And that's the first time I ever experienced this. And, like, I'm supposed to be, like, serious spaceman at this time. <laughs> I literally could not stop smiling. This was the coolest experience I've ever had in my life. Like, a, uh, a stadium full of people. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.